You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. In this episode, we speak with two venture capitalists, one in the generalist tech sphere and the other specializing in healthcare and therapeutics, with both seeing opportunities in the current market environment. They give us an exclusive on how they are evaluating portfolio companies and where they see value now, having the benefit of hindsight provided by the 2001 and 2008 market crashes. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Today is Wednesday, April 8th, and I'm James Buron with CASA. Today we're speaking with Eleanor Jerry with Breitspark and Peter Vandervelden with Lemura Ventures. Uh, we're going to be talking about private equity in the COVID-19 world. Uh, let's start with self-introductions. Maybe, Eleanor, you can go first. Yes, thank you so much for, for having us. Uh, my name is Eleanor. I am on the investment team at Breitspark Ventures. BrightSpark is an early stage venture capital firm, and we've been investing in Canada for a little over 20 years. So we invest solely in early stage private tech companies. Um, our initial investment in a company would be around $2 million on, at a valuation that is usually below $20 million. Um, but within technology, we're quite industry agnostic. Um, so we invest really across um, all industries in tech. And what we've been seeing in the past few years is that we used to consider technology uh, more as a standalone industry. But now we're looking at tech-enabled opportunities um, across even a wider range of sectors. So in a portfolio, we do have more traditional enterprise software, but we also have um, companies doing indoor farming, for example. And um, what we've been doing a bit differently than other tech VC firm um, recently is that we have kind of decided to open up the venture asset class So we are providing VC investment opportunities to accredited investors of every size. So individuals, family office, and institutions. Um, So we do run a more traditional venture fund, but we also run an online um, investment platform where we syndicate deals with our um, investor network through SPVs. Wow, that's interesting. So maybe drill down that for a second here. Um, So how does does the platform work? And like, so people... And like anybody can get on it and they, they receive, I don't know, deals. And then is there any advice on that or how does, how does that work? That's interesting. Yeah. So we started this model um, probably around five years ago now. Um, and it really started more organically where we, you know, had people around our network saying like, you know, I'm, I don't necessarily have $200,000 to invest in a venture fund or I tried doing angel investing, but I'm, you know, I don't have the background or the time to really do proper angel investments. Mm-hmm. Um, so other than equity crowdfunding, which is usually not where you'll find necessarily the top deals, I don't really have access to, you know, put 50 grand in, in the asset class. So we started kind of the SPV model and this crew to now, we have, um, I think, around 6,000 accredited investors in our network. Um, wow. So we, you know, we, we had to scale that. So we ate our own dog food and decided to build a tech platform to manage all of this. So um, as an investor, <laughs> you <laughs> go on brightspark.com, you create a profile. We do, um, we have an EMD license. So of course, we do um, go through KYC with everyone, make sure everyone is accredited to have access to the deals. Um, and then every time we do an investment, we 
do somewhat of a summary of our own investment memo that we've put on the web platform. And people can go through this kind of information and decide to invest. And everything is done is done remotely. So you click ready to invest. We complete all the legal forms with you online. You can you know, transfer your money, which is great right now because no one wants to be endling checks. Um, and <laughs> yeah. then we, we also do, you know, quarterly reporting. Um, all of the tax and financial statement is delivered on the online platform. Wow. And I guess just for uh, for listeners, SPV is like special purpose vehicle and a credit investor. Correct me if it's changed. It's $200,000 worth of income or 300000 with your spouse or a um, million dollars in financial assets. Or five million in net worth, um, which would be, which it would, would, I believe, would include your your home. So that's yes, uh, exactly. Yeah, six thousand you know people are on there. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And then in um, in your shop, Peter, uh, it's a bit more special. I think you're you're doing a lot of healthcare. You've been active in that area for quite a while. But let, let, let's hear your story. Yeah, so so we are 100% healthcare, primarily what I would describe as therapeutics with a skewing in medtech as well. And we've been doing that now for a very, very long time. We're, in fact, the biggest uh, and most active healthcare only investor in Canada, but we're not uh, simply confined to Canada. We really think of ourselves as a cross-border investor. And so our portfolio is pretty balanced mm-hmm. between the U.S. and Canada. Uh, we typically are deploying you know, initial checks of three to five, but really trying to deploy uh, 12 to $15 million per cap per company. Uh, we're pan-Canadian, so we have uh, partners across the country, uh, Vancouver, Ontario, uh, Montreal, and uh, we also have an office down in Boston. And mm-hmm. you know, I think what's different about our team than a lot of VC teams is 100% of our guys have been operators. They've even been live band scientists or, or they've started their own companies. And so I think you know our team's very empathetic to the entrepreneurial experience and what it takes to be an entrepreneur in our space and, and build these kind of companies. And I think the other thing that's really different, uh, you know, for, for us versus most traditional VCs, if you look at VC allocation, still most of it uh, across North America goes to two geographies, really Massachusetts and, um, mm-hmm. and, and California. We actually think that, you know, there's a ton of uh, under address opportunities in, in, in the rest of the North American geography. And in fact, if you look historically, our best wins have come outside of those two geographies. In fact, in 2019, our two biggest wins came out of Canada and were BC-based companies that both got two and a half billion dollar valuations. So, you know, we're really excited about building companies outside of those traditional geographies. Well, that's that's good news. Um, yeah, I could probably came up with a new acronym, the RONA, rest of North America. That's cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not to so, be confused. Yeah. Uh, not to be confused with... Uh, we, uh, Return on net assets. So, what about um, tell me about because you've been in, in the space for for like say quite a while in the VC space. So, what what has happened in Canada over the years? Um, uh, like we had the crisis a while ago. Everyone we, we kind of compare ourselves to the U.S. so much that I think it's uh, you know it's probably not a fair comparison sometimes. But what uh, like when hedge, hedge funds have changed in, in Canada over like just the last eighteen months? Uh, what, what's been happening in the VC side? Yeah, look, look, the Canadian market has expanded tremendously. If you look back to, you know, 2010, 2011, the market was in pretty dire shape. And, and you know, I give the Ontario government, the, the Quebec government, and, fe- and frankly, the federal government, a fair amount of credit for stepping in and putting in place some pretty innovative programs to help support the, the innovation ecosystem. Since then, you know, it's gone up fourfold, maybe a little bit more even, uh, you know, we're now deploying well over $4 billion. It's not the same kind of metrics as in the U.S., but the growth has been phenomenal. 
And, and I think the breadth of investor, you know, as is even indicative in this conversation, has really changed. There are traditional funds like us that are managing you know, capital for traditional sources of funders. And then there are lots of funds that are, are you know, very creative about where they source their capital and how they deploy their capital. And I think that's been really good for the innovation ecosystem. There are way more investors uh, to get engaged with the, with the breadth of opportunities that exist in the marketplace. Cool. And are they, uh, like a lot of the venture cap funds, are they like spe specifically investing into Canadian companies or are they kind of cross-border like you are, or are they more um, like a larger proportion in the U.S. companies because maybe that's where the opportunities are or global? Um, and yeah. uh, and also, what kind of structure do you have for your fund? Like, is it or is it a typical PE structure? Yeah, so it depends. I think on the size of fund. I mean, I think the bigger funds now are virtually all cross-border, and many of them are international. I mean. You know, some of the bigger funds in Canada have now got offices uh, in London or in California or, you know, in other mm. geographies around the world. So I think the big players have all gone you know, relatively North American for sure. And some of them have gone have gone global. Um, you know, I think we take the view that we don't need to get global to be to, to find best in class. You know, we're looking to make five to six investments uh, annually. And we think if you can't find five, five or six really fantastic investments in North America, then you, you have a broken business model. And so, um, you know, we're, we're just not worried about that at all. Uh, yeah, and we, we run a relatively traditional limited partner structure. I think the big thing for us that's changed, it goes a little bit back to you know, what Ellen was talking about earlier, is, you know, while we've traditionally sourced our capital from large institutional players, you know, pension plans, fund of funds, things like that. In our last fund, we added 15 family offices, uh, you know, who were looking for a different kind of product. Uh, and I think oh, wow. what we got to offer them you know, that was unique was both impact investing and recurrence based investing. And, and, you know, it's interesting how many of them uh, for how many of them that really was appealing. So yeah, it was impact investing and. And returns. Right. That sells itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but it was funny. We had a number of, of you know, uh, family offices come mm -hmm. to us and said, you know, they, they looked for, for impact opportunities. And one of the things that they were frustrated by was they couldn't see the correlation and on returns. And so wow. I think a lot of people got comfortable that we could show them real impact. You know, we build companies whose products fundamentally change patients' lives. And there's tons of evidence that on both the patient side and on the healthcare saving side. Uh, and at the same time, we're driving, you know, really, really good, good returns. And I think that balance was something that was really appealing to those family offices. Cool. And um, maybe your background, how, how did you start in this business? Yeah, so I thought I wanted to be a doctor, and then I did my master's in pathology at Queen's University and decided there was no chance in heck that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my career. Um, so I ended up working for, for Canada's largest vaccine manufacturer, a company called, at the time, called Canad Biosciences, completed an MBA in parallel uh, and, and loved it. I loved everything about the industry and figured that was just really where I wanted to be. And then we got bought by a French company called Pasteur Maria. And I had the good fortune right. of knowing the CEO of Cannot quite well because I've worked with him a few times. And I went to him and I said, I think I want to become a venture capitalist. I don't know what, much about what that means, but could you help me? And he said, absolutely. And he made four introductions and I ended up taking a job, you know, some 25 <laughs> years ago with, a, with, with what was then the largest VC in the country, a company called Vencap Equities. And that's how I transitioned into the venture business. Oh, I love that. Not quite sure what that is, but I, I really want to do it. Okay, we'll back you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe Eleanor, with your with your uh, so you have the the platform. Uh, we have the the SPVs and the, and the uh, transactions and the deals, and then you you say you have a fund as well that 
is relatively new. Now that seems like, um, yeah, you, 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 you've done the, the, the brand new stuff uh, with your platform and then kind of do backing up into the, the traditional. What, what's the story there? Yeah, so kind of, as I mentioned, BrightSpark, we've been in the market since uh, since 99, so 20 years. Um, and we manage more traditional venture funds of the kind of classic, as you mentioned, um, private equity structure as a limited partnership, um, mostly institutional pension funds, um, the kind of traditional player where you would see in a venture fund in Canada. And um, we saw a shift in the market, as I mentioned, around five years ago, where there was appetite for the asset class that was rising uh, from um, less uh, traditional source of, of capital, like Peter mentioned, family offices, also individuals. Um, so mm-hmm. we, we, we saw it as an entrepreneurial opportunity to build a platform to um, offer these kind of investments to investors that were a bit new to the asset class. Um, and it, it really scaled um, mostly through word of mouth. So a lot of investors um, that are doing a little bit of P or alternatives, um, you know, usually have a group of friends where they share investments. They have their wealth managers who are also um, usually kind of good at getting people together and sharing those um, those kind of opportunities. So it's really um, scaled a lot in the past few years. And um Last year, we were selected um, by a government program um, called Viki um, that uh, deploy a lot of money in venture capital funds um, across the country. And they um, they decided to launch a, a new stream for alternative models in venture capital. So we we fit really, really well um, with that definition. And they, um, they kind of prompted us to uh, raise go back to raising a traditional fund. Um, so we did that. We did a first closing in January. Um, on that fund, we're targeting 75 million. And the goal is um, going forward to invest kind of a dollar from the large fund matched with a dollar from SPV raised on the platform. So to balance out um, the two sources of capital, there's um, kind of benefits to doing that, uh, of having more of a you know predictable pool of capital from the fund, but also being able to deploy more capital and still give access to really good opportunities to um, accredited investors through the single purpose fund model. Oh, that's great. Thanks. So uh, we'll start with uh, Eleanor there and your, so you have the platform and the fund. So how have, um, how has that evolved over the last few months? And uh, specifically, maybe if you've seen something happen over the last uh, like four to six weeks with interest from your investors in the, um, in the in the uh, SPVs or the deals and in the fund, or have they? It was a, it was a more of a constant, uh, same as same as before. Um, yeah, that's a very interesting question. So, um, I, I would say demand and interest for for venture on both um, more traditional institutions and uh, individual credit investors has been really growing massively over the past um, twelve months. With mm-hmm. everything, the you know pandemic, global crisis, and um, and you know financial crisis that's coming straight for us um, going on, we're we're still unsure how individual investors are going to react. So um, yeah. maybe just um, what we we saw that a lot of major investors um, completely stopped investing in VC and and maybe P as well. I'm not sure during the 2008 crisis, um, right. and maybe add some regret around it. Because um, overall, the investments that were made in 2008 through 2010 
um, right now. So, you know, some companies are doing really well in Canada and the U.S. Um, like, you know, major successes were built during those um, our times. So what we, we think we'll know more in the next few months, but so far we believe there's, um, there's still going to be a really strong um, venture capital market over the next 18 months. Yeah, right, because you can diversify by uh, geography and types of companies that you're investing in and the the, the, the the stages or the rounds of investment, but also the vintages, which, as you mentioned, can be uh, like 2020 or 2019 might be some of the better vintages as people get get some pretty good deals. I had one venture VC mentioned that they were looking at founders, like the 30 to 50 percent off for some of their shares because they they were like they're they have a burden rate so they have they have to uh, they have to quench that and oh well, don't you have a lettuce company in there I think that would be something that would do well now is it growing your lettuce at home yes um we um so this summer we invested in a indoor farming company um we it was kind of a, a big bet that is outside of more traditional enterprise software under technologies that most VC will do um, we we backed wow. it because um, when we of course couldn't predict what COVID nineteen would bring on us, but we you know saw with the wildfires in Australia and California and E. coli outbreaks, like there's there's going to be a lot of pressure on food supply going on, and we're seeing it even more now than ever. Where with our, the relationships going on with the the states and other countries, people are just like maybe we want want to make sure that we can be self sufficient in terms of food. Um, and that we don't, you know, rely also on Mother Nature to make sure we can feed the country. So we we definitely think um, indoor farming is going to yeah. get a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of good opportunities coming their way. And we, we we're seeing it with our portfolio company right now. They're definitely getting a lot of inbounds from everywhere. Yeah. And just the transportation side, too, I guess. Um, so and, and for Peter, for yours, I mean, obviously, therapeutics, uh, anything to do with healthcare and helping patients get through any, any sort of, uh, uh, sort of condition or disease. Um, how, uh, are you, I shouldn't, I don't know if I should say you've seen opportunities, but there's, uh, there's been obviously some movement lately in the, the healthcare side. Uh, how has that affected your business and have investors been kind of nudging you and saying, Hey, is there, is this something that's going, that's, uh, you know, occurring in my portfolio as well? Yeah, so that's a great question, and, and maybe I'll take it in two parts. Look, it's clear there's a lot of COVID-19 questions going on around the space now. Um, I think the challenge there, it's a bit of a wheat from a chaff uh, problem. And so there are a lot of companies now that say they have some kind of solution, a diagnostic, a tool, uh, a therapy, uh, that were functionally broken companies before COVID-19, uh, and that probably are going to be functionally broken companies right after pandemic ends. So I, th I think you have to be very disciplined about what you look at in that space and make sure that the companies that are offering solutions actually had the wherewithal to be great companies before this opportunity came along. You know, having said that, I, I think it's pretty clear that some business models are going to get validated uh, that were challenged before. A great example is telehealth and telemedicine. You know, it was, it was very challenging to prove that that business model was going to scale in a way it made sense for investors. You know, we've been talking to some CEOs in that space and they're seeing volumes up now six, seven hundred percent over the last three or four weeks. Will that be sustained? That's the big question. But, you know, that's clearly a model that's getting validated today. On the therapeutic side, you know, we've been a big investor in antivirals. I think that sector is going to get way, way more engagement. Um, diagnostics has been a hard space for VCs to make money historically. Uh, could that change? If payers now believe that pain 
prophylactically for diagnostics might allow people to respond better to things like pandemics, uh, then then you may have a theme there that is sustainable. I also think there's going to be opportunities around biodefense, you know, tools that people can use to address these kind of, uh, of opportunities, and, and even things like building strategic reserves. I mean, the one thing that the pandemic has shown us is that the economy is way too interdependent, and and most countries cannot respond in you know independent of their supply chains. And so I think you're going to see countries start to build up more strategic mm-hmm. reserves. They're going to start to, to believe that they need competency and capacity in things like biologicals manufacturing, antivirus manufacturing, diagnostics manufacturing. And I think those are all going to be real opportunities for people. I guess in a more micro level, how do you uh, vet an idea and move it from the, through the process of uh, meeting the founders, hearing their idea, going through their financials? Um, and how does that change now? Like, are you are pens down and they're not going to do probably any major diligence for a while? Or is there a way that you can do it kind of like the telemedicine? You can do diligence uh, kind of by wire. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you, I guess you're not going to go see them anytime soon. But how, how do you how do you manage that with the kind of the lockdowns yeah. that we're having? Yeah, I think I think one of the great fallacies for a lot of people is that if you see like us, you know, somebody walks into our door and we go, oh, my gosh, that's just the best thing we've ever seen. And we got to invest in them tomorrow. Um, it just, just doesn't work like that in our sector. You know, we, we call uh, we have something that we measure called time over a company. So the time that we've known a company before we actually made an investment with them. And that that's relationship time. We've gotten to know the, the leadership time in team. We, we often guided them and provide them insights and commentary on what we think is going to be required for them to become a valuable company for them to scale. Uh, and, and we've followed their development and measured their milestone achievements. And so that time over company is often two to four years. And so what we're doing now as part of this is wow. we're, you know, we're obviously thematically driven. We're going back and looking at our themes and say, which of our themes are likely to be enforced and even more validated in this market? And then what companies have we looked at over the last 24 months that we believe were really exciting opportunities over the last 24 months that we didn't do for some reason? Maybe we didn't like the valuation. Uh, maybe there was some aspect of the team that didn't make sense in the context of what we wanted to see in the team architecture. Maybe a focus, mm-hmm. therapeutic focus didn't make sense, but we love the platform. Now we're going back and looking at those companies where we've already done a ton of fundamental due diligence, getting caught up on those stories and saying, is this an investable opportunity now in the context of what we're seeing in the market space? The other thing we're doing is we're reaching out to a lot of the co-investors that we deal with. And we're saying, look, guys, this is going to be a flight to best. We're all going to focus on the best opportunities we see in the market. And it's going to be much more challenging for the peripheral companies to get funding. But what in your portfolio do you love and why should I be looking at it? And I'm going to tell you what in my portfolio I love and that you should be looking at it. And so we're working with those co-investors, whether they're corporates, strategics, whether they're other VCs, whether they're um, you know entrepreneurs, right. frankly, that we've dealt with, and and just you know having those conversations to figure out who should get funded through these challenging times. And Eleanor, uh, with your team, uh, you, know, you have Mark and Sophie who have uh, been in the business for for decades, and they uh, you know they they've I guess gone through a few chain few challenges, probably nothing quite like this. How uh, how has that changed? And, and is your uh, time of the company similar to uh, to Peter's, uh, two to four years, or is it something that's uh, that's maybe a bit shorter or different, or how, how do you compare? Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, Mark has been through um, quite of these up and downs over the past twenty years in venture, but I, you know, this is really uncharted territory in the sense that there is very different level of unknowns. Um, there is, of course, kind of the economy, but from my understanding. You know, if you compare 2001 and 2008, I don't think there was as much um, 
changes that will come from consumer behaviors and company behaviors. Um, there is a lot of fear that is not necessarily linked to the economy that we think will um, drive major disruption in a few fields. Um, so it, it is kind of a first in a way where, however, still kind of taking a few tricks that the firm has learned um, throughout previous crisis. Um, and the, the main one is kind of not panic, be patient. Um, it is, there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of information being thrown around. Um, but we, you know, we're, we've been focusing a lot on our current portfolio, making sure everyone has enough cash, that everyone is adapting the right way. We are still investing. As I mentioned, we, uh, we did sign the term sheet last week. We are looking at new opportunities, but what everything that, um, that, that was mentioned by, uh, by Peter, we are also um, thinking at it the same way where I want to say, especially at the early stage, 70% of our investment decisions are based on the founding team. Right. So it's very, it's going to be hard for companies to, tr it's always hard to convince a VC on a cold outreach or even some, uh, you know, lukewarm introduction. Um, it's going to be even tougher now. Um, so we are um, revisiting Companies that were slightly too early for us in the past 18, 24 months, we are um, looking through that pipeline. We are um, working with, you know, pre-seed and seed funds that we we trust their judgment. We're looking at the portfolio and kind of sharing mm. notes with these people. Um, like, I think now we're seeing probably the first VC deals that are, are done where um, the investor really never met in person, um, the CEO or founder. Um, those are going to happen, but it's going to take some, some, some changes for sure, just to make sure that we build the same trust. Like it's such a, you know, trust is important both ways for the founder to pick the right investors and for the investors to really believe strongly in the founding team. So we'll have to build those, you know, relationship on video conference yeah. in a way. Um, I think we're going to get there, but again, like previous strong, relationship with other investors, with, you know, the entrepreneurial community, um, I think most of the deals are going to get done to um, those kind of networks. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Another, what could be a symbiotic relationship of, of government and businesses, and we've seen uh, governments around the globe have had different reactions, uh, both on the medical front and on the economic front, um, a lot of helicopter money. Um, Kind of my idea is that there's you probably can't get enough of it because you've got, you got big holes to fill in the economies. But um, there's what, what do you think of um, what's been happening like with regard to supporting entrepreneurs through this? Because startups are a startup. Like if they miss a quarter uh, or or you don't can't get their products out or or just don't have what the revenues that they'd like, uh, there isn't much to fall back on. And like I mentioned, some some of the um, you know, some of the founders, they have to just mark down their shares after a bit or maybe take some sort of private lending at, uh, at some rate. Uh, we actually have a, uh, a webinar on this uh, next week, but um, talk about the relative benefits of private equity and, and private lending. But how, how do you uh, how do you view the 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 uh, support for entrepreneurs and for business in general in the economy from the government and how much and how long do you think this is going to last uh, with regard to the this kind of like home isolation crisis sort of uh, sort of situation. Maybe we'll start with uh, with Peter. Yeah. So, look, I've been very involved with a bunch of the the people who are interacting with the governments on this. You know, through Biotech Canada, Life Sciences Ontario, Life Sciences um, LSO, uh, 
in the CVCA. And, and look, I think the government is trying to do the right thing. I think they're listening. You know, I think the first cut at it, which was trying to fund companies that have had a 30% revenue cut, you know, I think they thought that would be a broad solution. Uh, I think as people have come to understand it, it's, it's not going to do much for the innovation ecosystem because really there are two kinds of, of stakeholders in the innovation ecosystem. Those are those that are growing their revenues mm-hmm. very quickly. And therefore, on a year over year basis, they're not likely to have a 30 percent decline because they had nothing last year. And now they have something But going back to nothing, you know, wouldn't be the right, right. wouldn't show the 30 percent decline. And then you have companies that are building innovation off their balance sheets. Right. You know, the whole biotech sector, it's not a revenue driven uh, business, but the reality is not being able to do clinical trials, not being able to move your businesses forward, not being able to hit fundamental milestones uh, that you need in order to fund are all going to affect those businesses in a very material way. So I think the government's listening. I think the solutions that they put forward yet haven't addressed some of the core challenges for the innovation ecosystem. You know, I think what, what a lot of the stakeholders are now proposing is the government fo- focuses on things like uh, payroll retention uh, or, or payroll taxes. Uh, either reducing or eliminating payroll taxes or looking at uh, retention of payroll as a a mechanism, because what you really want to have happen is not have all those tech companies push all of those people onto uh, EI and onto the government's uh, payroll and rather have them stay being productive within the companies where they are currently domiciled. So I I think there's a much better response from governments as a whole than we saw in 08. I think in 08, the response was slow and and took a while. you know, and was really banking centric. I think this is much broader uh, based. I think many, many more companies are affected here and are affected fundamentally. I think many more people are affected here. I mean, look, you know, the unemployment, I don't know what the numbers were today, over 3 million. I mean, that's that's a phenomenal number, right? And so I think the government is coming to understand that. And I think they're working proactively on it, but I don't think we have the right solution. And how long do you think this will last? Is it the Bill Gates 12 to 18 months or... Our premier, you know, so, 2024 or- yeah, I'm, I'm in that, that mm-hmm. camp because I think it's going to be cyclical. Yeah, I, I think it's 12 to 18 months and I think it's going to be cyclical. I think we'll, we'll get back. I think obviously some people are going to have immunity. They're going to be able to start working. Uh, and I think that's why testing is so important. It's not about finding out if you have the disease today and, and can sit home and just mm-hmm. get better. That's got nothing to do with it. Testing is about finding out who can go back and be productive in society and work, you know, in a way that we need them to work so that the economy comes back on track. So, so that's what really matters. But look, we're not going to have a vaccine for 12 to 18 months. Vaccine is really the only way to have surety that you can mm-hmm. get back to a full economy. And so, you know, we are likely to have some cyclical behavior mm-hmm. here as people come back into the workforce, people get sick again. But hopefully you're starting to get, you know, some herd immunity so that the potential for the broad, the broad group of people to get sick and overwhelm yeah. the healthcare system a second time becomes less with each cycle. I mean, that's the challenge today, right? We're overwhelming the healthcare system and, you know, we're putting all kinds of people's lives at risk as a function of that. Uh, how about uh, your house view, Eleanor, on the, the like the cyclical behavior or um, is there any, any other type of uh, input you have on that and and uh, what, what the government has been bringing to the table? Yeah, I totally agree with Peter, um, both in terms of, you know, or get ready for 12 of 18 months of, of this. And I think the government is, is lessening so that, you know, companies that are building innovation, like, you know, those are the future job creators um, are covered and can survive this. Um, I think some companies, especially in tech, you know, we were in the peak of a bubble in technology um, where, you know, so many startups were, uh, you know, coming to market every week 
Um, I think some of the, maybe of the fraught will disappear from that. Like some companies that didn't have strong fundamentals will not recover from that. And that's okay in a way. Um, what we've been saying with our, you know, to a portfolio is definitely make sure to make the most out of the help that is given by the government, but also don't rely on the government to save your business. Um, to make sure that, you know, if this does affect the economy for 28 to 24 months, um, then you're still in business because I you know there's limit to what um, the government can do just in terms of, you know, not going bankrupt as a country uh, to help companies. So we don't want them to, you know, think this is kind of a lifeline where they can just hook on and um, hope things will get better. Like it's kind of every entrepreneur's responsibility as well to uh, to would do what's best for the business and make sure, um, you know, they weather the storm and come out of this stronger than before. So where are the opportunities? What are you seeing, uh, Eleanor, in your portfolio? You said you just had an offering come out. Um, are there transactions that you've seen maybe more specifically that you think are, are more apt for this this type of new abnormal, whatever you might call it, uh, or things that... Um, that you may not have looked at before, but now I'm thinking, okay, maybe that is something we might look at and get into. So I think there's different different kind of companies that um, can capital, capitalize on what's going on. Mm-hmm. What we've seen in 2008 um, is when there is a major economic slowdown, there is really good opportunities for seed stage companies. So we define seed stage companies that people are still kind of building their product or testing their business assumption. We believe this is a great time for um, these companies because they do not rely necessarily on, you know, massive revenues or customers to make payroll. They have low monthly expenses. They're by definition more nimble, um, maybe more entrepreneurial because they're still in that phase. We usually do a lot of seed and series A deals. We might do more seed deals over the next couple of months, just because we believe that this is a prime time for company to be heads down, focusing on their technology and might emerge when this is over with a far superior product than other companies that didn't have that luxury of really, you know, keeping top engineer on payroll and really focusing um, on, on building IP while they can um, and be there when the market is ready for, for such product. We believe a few industries will um, really be changed by by what's going on. Companies in general will uh, be looking to be ready for the next crisis. Um, if it's a pandemic, uh, you know, a weather issue, people will need will want to be ready to go remote again. Um, and for that, there's mm. going to be kind of a spike of solutions to connect the physical and digital world, for example. Okay, thanks. And uh, Peter, what are you seeing for, for opportunities? And then also, uh, maybe if, if you have any advice for investors that are looking at this, so you've, again, been through a few uh, a few cycles yourself. Yeah, so I, I, so as I said earlier, you know, we're thematically driven, and that thematic is agnostic to whether it's a public or a private company. We don't typically invest in publics, but we'll do pipes uh, in, in private companies or in public companies if we love the story. You know, if you look at the small cap um, public sector in biotech right now, valuations on those companies are up down approximately across the board about 60%. Uh, so those companies are now priced generally better than their comparable private companies. And so we are doing a lot of work looking at those companies that fit our themes and theses, 
that might have gone public in the last two years uh, and that are going to need capital in the next 12 months. And it's easy for us to identify those companies. They were already on our radars. We've already been following them. Our analysts know them. Our, our partners know them. And if you look back to 08, we took two companies public right before the 08 uh, crash. Um, one, one of the company, one a med tech company. If you look at what happened to their stock in 08, it cratered. And went, in both cases, the stock went under the IPO price. Roll forward three years later, one of those companies sold for $11 billion. One of those companies sold for $1.7 billion. So we actually have a pretty core theme and thesis here that some of these publicly traded companies are going to be much better value than private companies. They already have liquidity vehicles, i.e. they're already public. Um, and their ability to get to value inflection points right. earlier is going to be much easier. So, so we like that part of it. On the private side, you know, as we talked about a little bit earlier, uh, we, we now have some more of our analysts doing some work around themes that we've always been interested in, but that we weren't convinced were going to be real. And I think, you know, telehealth is one of those. It, mm -hmm. It's now starting to look like it's getting traction. The question, again, exactly as you heard before, is going to be about sustainability. Is that going to transition after this closes? We're also seeing companies responding and doing things fundamentally different that they didn't do. We, we have a company in our portfolio right now which is in clinical trials. And one of the challenges now for many companies is they can't monitor their clinical trials. And so they're having to shut down their clinical trials. These guys gave every single patient a device like a cell phone so they could record everything that a nurse would have otherwise recorded. That uplo uploads every evening. And so we're getting exactly the kind of data that we need on those patients. And so we're able to keep that clinical trial you know, moving forward almost full steam. So we're going to look at those kind of opportunities where we can continue to you know, follow manage, monitor, and take care of patients in clinical studies that aren't going to be reliant on the overwhelmed healthcare system that probably isn't going to come back. And then we're going to look for opportunities on the clinical side where most of the clinical testing is likely to be done in private clinics as opposed to hospital environments, where you can continue to do clinical work in specialist environments that don't rely on the hospital systems. We think those are going to be very interesting opportunities. And then as I said earlier, you know, we, we think there's going to be real options around things like antivirals and biodefense. You know, biotech has, has markedly outperformed most VC tech sectors in terms of performance and returns for the last 10 years. Um, but the challenge is most people don't understand it and therefore don't think they can invest it. You know, I don't think this environment has improved that at all. It was tough before to make good investments in this space. I think it is tough now. Um, you know, I think you need to, if you're going to think about investing in the space, try and follow the smart money. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but you know, the people who can do the due diligence, who can differentiate the wheat from the chaff, because I don't think it's gotten easier, but I think the opportunity set that will come out of this, uh, you know, will be some of the best in class. In, in your, you know, if you look at the 08 data, if you look at the 01 data, uh, those vintages in the next three years tend to be some of the best vintages because the smart investors knew where to deploy capital in this market space. And Eleanor, any, uh, any advice for investors? A lot of the advice we give um, in more normal times still um, ring true. Diversify, diversify, diversify. Like Peter mentioned, also, if you are going to go into an asset class that you're not an expert in, make sure you do it with um, someone who knows it inside out and that has been through um, you know, downturns within that asset class in the past. And, and I think if you're doing private stuff, you can wait. I think valuations are going to come down. You know, and I don't mean that to sound mercenary. That's just the reality. I mean, in almost every down cycle, um, it's taken the private markets three to six months to follow the public markets. Uh, and if, you know, as I said before, if, if small and mid cap biotech is down 60 percent, I, I don't think the privates are going to go down by that much. But I think you'll see meaningful price resets. Great. Thank you both. This has been uh, well, quick insight into the, the private markets, both broad and, uh, and specifically into 
healthcare therapeutic. Uh, thanks, Eleanor. Thanks, Peter. And uh, we look forward to having you on another uh, another podcast sometime again soon. Thanks, Kim. Thank you, James. James, thanks for hosting us today. Appreciate it.